I don't know about you, but it seems like we in uh, life take many things for granted. We don't often appreciate the good things that we have and enjoy until they're taken away from us. You know, whether that's good health or a loving family or freedom or security and peace or friendships, when those things are present in our lives, and we continue on as normal and don't fully realize how important they are. You know, like taste buds. Thought about that this week? I'm thankful for taste buds. Can enjoy good coffee, good food, sight. If you didn't have sight any longer, that was to go away. You couldn't drive, you couldn't see the sunrise anymore. What about hearing? You know, listen to a child laugh or sounds of the wind or the waves crashing into the land. I'm sure there are many things we could list here this morning that we take for granted. What if you never heard from God? Just silence. You know, the Old Testament prophet Amos gave a terrible threat to the people of Israel in the 8th century B.C. In Amos chapter 8, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. The warning is that God would be silent. A horrific famine, not in which people look for food and water, but they will search to hear from God and they will find nothing. This would be the beginning of the end for Israel this time. We struggle to appreciate the significance of Amos's warning, probably because we don't know what it's like to live through any type of famine. We've either grown, I believe, too comfortable with God's word or we've not experienced enough of it. Have we taken God's word for granted? Have we lost sight of the significance of hearing and understanding God's word? This chapter, 1 Samuel 3, is about speaking. It's about the word. It's about a message. It's about God's power to work when there was silence. He was not finished with his people. He would speak again. He would choose Samuel and he would give him a very important job. And the chapter here this morning showcases our God. It showcases his faithfulness. Faithful to his promises, faithful to his people. He's, he's faithful. This morning as we venture in the third chapter of Samuel, we're going to look at this. We're going to look at how God is silent and the call of Samuel and then the, the job of Samuel. But before we do, would you join me in prayer? God, we come before your throne this morning and we ask that you would speak to us, that you would teach us through your word, through the preaching of your word. God, I ask that you would be the focus here this morning, that your people would, would see and understand in your word what you have for them. God, I thank you for your word that leads us and guides us and gives us understanding of how we should live and, and function in this world. I pray, God, that we'll be obedient to your word. Teach us this morning, give us understanding, bring conviction. We'll give you all the glory for what you do in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. 
The first point I want you to, to make note of is that God was silent. God was silent. Actually, before we dive in, let's read the chapter. I, didn't, I was going to normally do this, and I didn't have it in my notes, but let's do this here. Follow with me as I read 1 Samuel chapter 3, starting in verse 1, and we'll go through the chapter. Now, the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, who I, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood calling it, as at the other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I've spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I will declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, Here I am. And Eli said, What was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you, and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him. And let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh, by the word of the Lord. As we enter into this chapter and, and right off the bat there in verse one, we, we see the situation that's laid out. The boy, Samuel, is ministering before the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. It was rare. It was precious, like a playoff victory for the Detroit Lions. The word of God was nowhere to be found. It was a dark time. It was a depressing time. I mean, can you imagine as we've covered the last couple chapters of what, what it was like at the temple? If, if Eli's two sons are doing what they're doing, it was a dark time. These, these men were wicked. And the word of the Lord was not found. Verse 2, at that time, Eli, whose eyesight, who, 
had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. At this time, he's probably close to 98, 99 years old, failing vision, also a sign of what it's like in Shiloh. Darkness was overcoming light, and yet God's gonna work. Darkness filling the land, and everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, it says in Judges. But in verse three, the lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. There would be a, a light that would come to the people. And the, and the author points us to that. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, meaning that just before dawn, God is about to speak. Literally, the, the lamp would run out of oil, but figuratively, before the darkness would consume God's people, God was coming to call out his next prophet for ministry. Samuel was lying down, probably in a chamber, a room off the temple, this is where the ark of God was, and it's the first mention of the ark in the book of 1 Samuel. And the ark will play a major role in the story in the next three chapters. But for now, the presence of the ark and the tabernacle reminds us of God's covenant commitment to Israel. What was the ark? It was a gold-plated wooden box that contained the two stone tablets of the law with engraved words that said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And here is young Samuel. The lamp of God is still burning. The temple of the Lord is there and the ark is in its place. And the scene is set now for God to work. So second, we see Samuel's call. Verse four, then the Lord called Samuel. What grace there is in those words. At this time when God's word had been violated and trampled on by the sons of Eli, when God was just to bring, when he was completely just to bring judgment, not only to the house of Eli, but to the nation itself. Silence was something they deserved, and yet in God's grace, he comes. It says he called Samuel, and he said, here I am. And you, we read through this back and forth between Samuel and Eli, not sure who's, who's calling him, goes back and forth, back and forth between his room, sleeping quarters to Eli. He's thinking he's getting summoned. And he says in verse seven, though Samuel did not yet know the Lord and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. He didn't know the Lord. What a strange thing to say. And we read that he was ministering before the Lord, that he was growing in the Lord. So, so what does it mean that he did not know the Lord? And you know, the stranger thing that I found about these words is that if you remember, they were, they were critical words pointed at, at the two sons in chapter two. But in their case, it was connected to them being worthless men, wicked men who did not know the Lord. There's no such connection here. The point is that the author is trying to make sure that we understand that Samuel had never yet heard the voice of the Lord. So he didn't recognize it, not yet. Now, we wouldn't say he was an unbeliever. He just didn't have the intimate knowledge of a personal relationship with the Lord. And it's about to change. Because salvation always comes by the gracious call of God's word to the person. In verse eight, and the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he, and he arose and went to Eli again. Here I am, for you called me. And then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Now, I find this interesting. E Eli is an interesting guy to me. Uh, it seems as though that he's void of understanding in chapter two, that he just doesn't get it. 
But here in, the, in this chapter, verse eight, he recognizes that God might be now calling Samuel and he informs him on what to do next. Verse nine, therefore Eli said to Samuel, go lie down and if he calls you, you shall say, speak Lord for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place and the Lord came and stood calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel, and Samuel said, speak for your servant hears. You know, it hit me as I was thinking through this. It's, it's not an easy thing for a person who's in the middle of a deep sleep to spring to their feet time and again. Anyone do this really well in the middle of the night? Parents, do your kids do this in the morning? Let me be honest. Uh, you know, I, some of your kids like to sleep. I know that. I, I, I liked to sleep when I was young. My dad used to stand at the foot of my bed when it was time to get up, go to school and just put his foot on the bed and bounce it until either I woke up or fell off. But that's not what you see with, with the young boy Samuel. He not only springs up, but he's alert. He's, he's obedient to the voice. And he wants to serve. You know, when I'm, when I'm woken up in the middle of the night by little feet coming into my bedroom, I, I'm not always really friendly. It's shocking to you, I'm sure. Samuel is not that way. His mind overcomes his body, his desire to sleep, I'm sure. Is that true for us? Charles Spurgeon, preaching on this passage, said this, Samuel was asleep, yet he heard God's voice. But I know some people who are awake, yet who have not heard it. They've been sitting here with their eyes wide open, yet they have seen nothing of the truth, and with their ears open too, yet the voice of God has never penetrated the secret chambers of their souls. For Samuel, this was the first time that he heard a direct word from the Lord. But how many times have you sat under the preaching of God's word, and yet you've heard nothing? You take it in through one of your ears and it passes through to the other right out, never reaching your heart. Samuel was different. He was patiently enduring the call of God. In verse 11, he says to him, behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. Another vivid phrase that the Lord uses here. Have you ever had the experience of being so terrified that you cannot speak or your lips begin to quiver? What he's about to say will have the effect of a, a clap of thunder on those who hear it. Have you ever heard thunder before? We grew up in Michigan and we'd have thunderstorms where you'd see lightning strike in the distance and then count to see how far away it is because you'd hear the, the claps of thunder. And you know it's coming. Like you see the lightning and you know it's coming. It still causes you to tense up. That's what he's saying here. Thunder claps. It, it, it's, it's sudden. It, it causes you to, your heart to skip. It shocks you. And God was going to do something in Israel that would have had the same effect on the ears of everyone that hears it. It just shocks them out of Normalcy in life. The phrase is used other times in the New Testament. In 2 Kings 21.12, it says, 
Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. And in Jeremiah 19.3, we read the same. God is going to do something that will affect everyone, make their ears ring. And he, he goes on to explain it. Verse 12, on that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I've spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I will declare to him that I'm about, I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. The simple, terrible news was that God would do what he said he would do. God will judge sin with the severity that it deserves. Eli and his sons didn't learn the lesson of the destructive nature of sin. I remember hearing in college, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you're willing to pay. God will judge the house of Eli. It's easy for us maybe to read through the actions of Eli and his sons, and because we're sinners ourselves, we might come away thinking that maybe God is a, a bit too harsh. Eli wasn't the one who sinned in the temple. He wasn't the one going uh, person to person, stealing from the people as they sacrificed. He wasn't the one that slept, slept with the women of the temple. I mean, he did allow his sons to do these wicked acts, but begin to wonder, maybe, maybe he tried to curb their, their decisions. So it seems harsh. Why would you do this, God? And the problem is, is when we go down that path and start thinking this way, we're in trouble because we're not God. Now, that'd be shocking to you this morning. I hope it's not. You're not God. We cannot make the proper judgment because we don't have all the information that God has. Furthermore, you don't have the same level of justice that God has. You don't have the same amount of holiness that God does. You don't have the same amount of knowledge concerning Eli and his sons that God does. So we should never dare to step in and question the judgment of God. All that he does is right. There's no twinge of wrong in God. He is the God of knowledge. He is the God of justice. He is the God of holiness. And as the Psalms say, God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. And it'd be absurd to think that we know more than God does in these sh short few verses here. God is righteous. God is holy. God is just. And we should submit to him. So God continues this message to Eli in verse 14. He says, therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. And as we looked at last week, the worst of the rotten things that Eli's sons did was to treat with contempt the very provision God made for the forgiveness of sins. Do we understand the horror of verse 14? You know, if the gracious provision of God to forgive our sins is spurned and, and scorned and disdained, then what's left? If you spit in the very face of God for his offer for forgiveness, what hope do you have now? 
And as we read in chapter two, the sons of Eli had passed the point of no return. They continued in their rejection. Romans says, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. He gave them over. So this, this section here is the beginning of the prophetic era with the calling of Samuel. And in this, we see the most basic form of divine revelation. God comes before Samuel and gives him the message to record and to, to pass on. And most of the prophetic material in Scripture is presented this way. God speaking orally and then them writing it down, more or less verbatim as a prophet to give it to the people. This was to follow what God had set up in Deuteronomy 18, 18. The Lord said, I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. You know, the interesting thing, the prophets don't, don't tell us that they have been wrestling with some sort of idea and they're, they're trying to flesh it out for us. No, they, they give us God's word. They uniformly tell us the word of the Lord came to me. So the authority lies with God, not, not the prophet. It's God's message. And this will be the, the call of Samuel. This will be his life. Filled with speaking God's word to his people. So we've seen how God was silent. And we see the call of Samuel. The third thing is Samuel's first job. Do you remember your first job? We were talking about that just this week in the office. Louise was in there and I was, we were chatting about the first job. I remember my first job. I really worked hard to find it. At 16, I wanted a car. And so my parents said, well, well, we'll help you with insurance, but it's up to you to buy the car and put gas in it. So I needed to find a job. And I, I don't know what the laws are now, but then it, they had limits on it. So I had to find a job that was willing to pay me um, minimum wage and give me enough hours. And I think the, the, the laws were 10 to 12 hours a week that I could work. Minimum wage was $4.25. I don't feel that old until I say that out loud. And I remember the first paycheck when I got that and worked however many hours and I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, who is FICA and why are they taking my money? What is up with that? And it wasn't a glamorous job. It was a, I worked as a dishwasher at Ponderosa Restaurant in Mount Morris, Michigan. It was an easy job, really. It was simple in that way. Nothing close to the difficulty that Eli or that Samuel has in his first job. His job would be hard. You know, part of Samuel's job was receiving God's word. It would be essential for him to hear the word from the Lord, but that wasn't enough. He would need to speak God's word. Verse 15 says, Samuel lay until morning, then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son, and he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you would hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. I seriously doubt that Samuel went back to sleep after hearing from God. It says he was fearful to share with Eli what the Lord had told him. 
a young boy now to confront his mentor. A difficult message for him to hear, I'm sure. Even though Samuel could most definitely see the deficiencies in Eli, he was the one who raised him. He was the one who fed and cared for him. So I can imagine this message would be hard. But we're in the same boat today, aren't we? We've been given a message from God. We've been given the gospel. It's difficult to receive, difficult to deliver. One author writes, the gospel message is essentially a very hard message to preach and to hear because it's a call to sinners to confess their helplessness to save themselves and to turn in repentance and faith to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation through the substitutionary atonement for sin. This message is hard because as humans, we don't want to hear it. You know, the message of the gospel is, is seen by the world around as arrogant and unloving. You know, the gospel is offensive to humans. And it doesn't take long when you're sitting with an unbeliever and you're discussing the things of God, and you're discussing the gospel, and you're sorting through what it is, and they turn it in their minds, and they turn and look at you with a shock and horror, and they're saying to you, are you telling me what I believe is wrong? Are you saying to me that myself, along with billions of people in this world, are wrong? And what's the answer, friends? We don't believe in the gospel because we're born in America and we're a Christian nation. No, we believe the gospel because it's true. And if the gospel's true, it's our responsibility to share it with others. And when we venture into this world and tell people that they're wrong and that God is right, they'll respond the same way. It's his message, it's his truth. And we shouldn't fear because we represent him. William Blakey has written, he says, and how prone are we to try to soften what is disagreeable in our gospel message to sinners, to take off the sharp edge and to sheathe it in general, generalities and possibilities. It's no real kindness, he says. The kindest thing we can do is to declare God's doom on sin and to ensure men that any hopes they may cherish of his relenting to do so as he had is in vain. We don't soften the gospel, we release it. And in this, Samuel has the same difficulty. In his limited knowledge, he knows he needs to share with Eli. And he does. He shares all that the Lord had said to him. I'm sure Samuel did not gleefully share with Eli, but he follows through with the, the command of his superior. Eli was the one who would ask for the details from the Lord. Eli seemed to recognize the difficulty. So his words to Samuel are both firm and kind. In the strongest possible way, he insisted that Samuel tell him all that the Lord had said. And in this, Eli is training Samuel on what would soon be his occupation. He's training him right now to speak the difficult things because they need to be said. 
And after Eli hears the words of the Lord, he says this, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. It is the Lord. I believe this is probably one of the greatest moments for Eli in this book. You know, he submits himself to the rightness of God. His submissive words showed Samuel the right way to follow God. You know, he shows no jealousy of, of Samuel. I mean, think about it. He, he could have, right? He, he could have lashed back at him. This is my position, Samuel. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know what I've done? He could have given the resume. He could have been defensive. You know, Samuel just dropped off here by your mom. He could have been rude and disrespectful, but that's not what we see with Eli. He doesn't respond wickedly. And as words, you hear a much different tone and message. He must know that God has chosen Samuel to replace him. And then the chapter ends. Verse 19, and Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. Let none of his words fall to the ground. God will have no fallen words. What an interesting phrase. What does it mean? It's common in, in Hebrew, very picturesque way to communicate. Hebrew words are very concrete and yet metaphorical in the way that it speaks of things. Another example that I found this week was when you're reading the Old Testament in English, it will talk about the presence of God. Well, there's no word for presence in Hebrew. And I read this week as I was studying that when you see the word presence, it's really the word panem, meaning the face of God. So in Psalm 139, 7, it says, Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your face? This is in English, your presence. And that very, what a picture there for us, right? We, we can't escape the face of God. And so when it, in verse 19, it says that God will let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. What does it mean? It doesn't mean that Samuel will never say anything wrong. He's still human. It means that when Samuel prophesied, he, he, when God revealed his word to Samuel, and then Samuel would turn around and speak it, none of his words would fall to the ground. In the verse 20, we read about that. What happens then? That all Israel, all throughout, Samuel was, was established and understood as the prophet of the Lord. They would, they would know that Samuel would be the mouthpiece for God. So God's words never fall to the ground. Have we answered what that truly means? No. I think there's more. I had to do some extra study this week. Came across a great sermon by Tim Keller and so I, I listened to it, read through it. It was very impacting to me. So I'm going to share what I've learned from that. And actually, during our elder meeting this week, we had a chance during part of our discussion, we read through 1 Samuel 3. And so read through the chapter and I asked the, the men, what, what stuck out to you? What, what are things that impacted you? What, what should I not miss in this chapter? And so we had a dis- good discussion, right? And one thing that came out in the discussion was this phrase, it would fall to the ground. So I had to dig in and, and, and look at that and and it came across that, that the fall of the ground here means to rot or to fall to pieces. What's really saying is that the word of God will never pass away. The word of God will never spoil. Never be discontinued or removed or lack substance. Another way of thinking about it is that the words of God will take up space. 
came across another fascinating thing this week where Martin Luther actually puts it this way. He says, the words of a human being is a little sound that goes out into the air and is gone. But the word of God is heavier than heaven and earth. Indeed, it outweighs the heavens and the earth and it will outlast them. Now you see what Luther is saying is human words don't take up space. Human words pass away. Well, now we're getting somewhere. What are human words? Scientifically, they're just a vibration of molecules in the air that fall on your ear and then they are gone and they haven't done a single thing. Let me illustrate this for you. This past Monday, there was football on. I like to watch football. And my Lions were on TV. And it was the first time, I don't get it very often there on the East Coast, and so I got a chance to watch it. They did well, they won. Don't tell me what they're doing now, they're probably losing. But if you watch sports with me on a regular basis, I tend to talk to the TV. And my, my girls are, are just completely dumbfounded by this. Without fail, every time they sit and watch with me for a little bit, they hear me talk or raise my voice to the TV, and they look at me strangely and they say, Dad, you know they can't hear you, right? They won't do what you want, and they won't. Why? Why won't the players hear me? Why won't they do what I want them to do? I mean, I'm right. They should have passed instead of run. They won't listen to me. They won't obey my words, right? I mean, you guys know what this is like, right? I mean, Seattle fans, you know this, right? You don't pass the ball at the one-yard line. You what? Come on, you, what do you do? You, you give it to the running back. You, you know, I mean, how many of you screamed that at the Super Bowl? Well, maybe you say, no, you have to be there. Maybe if you're there at the game and you yell at the top of your lungs, they would do exactly what you want, right? Does that work, Mike? It doesn't work. It's just really loud. I know Seahawks fans think they have that type of power, but you don't. No man, no human has that power. Your words come and go. It's because human words evaporate. Human words pass away. Human words don't actually have any real substantial effect. If you want to stand out there and actually have the players do something different, then you have to do more than just talk to them or yell. Human words cannot dictate what happens. You actually have to do something, and our words don't. Now, let me give you another illustration. The old story of the Danish king, Canute. And without going into the old myth of King Canute, what does King Canute do? Have you ever heard this story? King Canute puts his throne on the shoreline, and as the tide comes in, what does he say? He says to the water, stop. Do you know what happens? Nothing. doesn't stop because when a human being says stop that doesn't do a thing because human words fall to the ground they evaporate it is said in that in that story with king canute that the king leapt backwards saying let all the men know how empty and worthless is the power of kings 
There is none worthy of the name, but he whom is in heaven and on earth, the sea obey him. And he hung his, his crown on a crucifix and never wore it again to the honor of the King Almighty. He knew that his words were not the same as God's words. You know, going back to the book of Genesis, God said, let there be light, and then he worked really hard to make light, right? No. He spoke it, and it was there. Why? Because God's words are actions. You might think that you're really important in this world, that you have some strong pull, then I'd like to see you create with your words. You won't be able to do it. We're all brought low. I would love, love to have my kids obey when I speak words. It doesn't happen that way. When it says that God's word will not return void, it means that when God speaks, it's reality. It shapes reality. It defines reality. His words are the eye beams of the structure of reality. His words don't fall to the ground. When it says the scripture cannot be broken, he, he's saying anything God says will have an effect. It cannot be ineffectual. When it says the law of God, that there's not a, a jot or a tittle will pass away until it's all fulfilled, he's saying the same thing. If the word of God cannot fall to the ground, how does this apply to us? The word of God cannot be resisted. Folks, the, the word of God will break you one way or another. Jeremiah 23, 29 says, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Our, our words can affect people, but they don't change people. They don't make people. They don't make things. We can have influence, but that's the extent. God's words, though, are final. You either submit to God's words or be smitted by it. The word of God cannot be resisted. And in the end, nobody will disobey God's word. Nobody. When Jesus says the scripture cannot be broken right away, you say, how can that be? I live in America. Don't you understand that people lie? People steal. We learn this in the Old Testament. We see every day people break the scripture all the time. So what can this mean? Well, in the end, no one can disobey the word of God. But in the short run, some come to the word and submit themselves to it, and when they do, it breaks their pride. When you obey it and submit to the word of God, it will break your pride. For example, when it says you should not bear false witness, it, it means don't lie. That's the word of God. Now, the word of God does not fall to the ground, so if you hear it and you let God's word have its way with you, it will humble you. You will submit to it, and you will seek to obey it, and you will realize that we're all liars. We lie to ourselves, and we deceive ourselves, and we lie to other people. And when you allow the word of God to come in, it's a hammer to your soul. It cannot be resisted. It doesn't fall to the ground. It's not wasted. It will break us. It will break our pride, and it will break our wrong thinking. It will turn us into obedient and honest people. But on the other side, that if you hear God's word and you don't receive it, and you don't let it in, and you guard yourself, and you deny its truth, and you don't let it break your pride, someday it will break your life. 
Someday the word of God will judge you. God's word will not fall to the ground. You may say, well, how is that? Go ahead and lie. Some of you already are. The more you lie, the more it becomes who you are, the less you understand of yourself. When you lie to people in your life, you're actually abusing them. You're treating them like their children, that they cannot handle the truth. You're taking away their humanity. And when you continue to lie, you're destroying your marriage. You're destroying relationships. You see, when you break the word of God, it will break you. It will crush you. Why? Because the word of God cannot be broken. The words of God will never fall to the ground. And so you can either let the word of God break your pride or it will eventually break your life. You know, on the last day, the word of God will get up and actually break your soul if you've not submitted to him. This week, Pastor Ryan and I were able to go with a couple other pastors down to Portland to our pastor's fellowship and the speaker shared two messages from the book of Jonah, challenging messages from Jonah 1. And if you remember in the book, God wants Jonah to go to, to Nineveh to preach the gospel to them, but Jonah doesn't want to go, right? Well, cutting to the end, God, God makes sure Jonah is there. And what does Jonah do? He gives a very weak message. Have you ever looked at the sermon from Jonah there in chapter 3? I'll share it with you. You ready? Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Amen. Close your Bibles. Let's go. That was it. What a gospel message, Jonah. He doesn't call them to repent. He doesn't share the details of who God is. And what do they do? Do you remember? The next verse. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And if that doesn't show you the power of God and salvation, I don't know what else will. Well, there's this shocking passage in Matthew's gospel where Jesus says to some people who won't believe in him, he says this in Matthew 12, 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and con condemn it. For they repent of the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. What is he saying? The men of Nineveh will rise up at judgment. I believe he's saying that you'll be judged by the amount of knowledge you have. He's saying to them in Matthew's gospel, you have more information about who Jesus is than the men of Nineveh had. You know, Jonah went out there and preached and it was a pathetic sermon. And Jesus says, I've given you more knowledge more of the word of God, more uh, of, of uh, who God is. Because of that, the greater judgment will be on you on the last day. The men of Nineveh, the word of God, will rise up and judge you. You'll have nowhere to run that day. You can't escape the word of God. It will not fall to the ground. This is the bad news, right? Can I tell you the good news? Great news, actually. It's that if you're willing to take the word of God in, you'll become an imperishable person. You know, look at Jesus. 
He was filled and controlled by God's word. You can see it throughout the gospels. Jesus quoting scriptures and his teaching and his rebukes and his warnings. He also speaks the word of God in hard times. Time and again, he brings God's word into situations that he's, he's in. When he's tempted by the devil, what does he do? What does he quote? The word of God. And he's dying on the cross. When he's rejected by the people, when he's suffering, what does Jesus do? He quotes the word. You remember when Jesus is in the garden with the soldiers and they come to get him? And what does Peter do? Well, he, he jumps up to, to protect him and grabs his sword and cuts off the ear of a man. And what does Jesus do? He, he rebukes Peter. You know, he says to him, I, I could have called down 12 legions of angels to protect me. But Peter, I'm doing what the scriptures say. They tell me I need to die. You know, even on the cross, Jesus quotes scripture, the most agony that he will ever experience as a man when the, when the sins of, of his people are heaped on him. And what does he do? He quotes scripture. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a quote. Psalm 22. And when you're in incredible pain, when sorrow has overcome you, when you can't see anything and you don't understand, when you're at the very end, what comes to your mind? Those things that come to your mind are the deepest things in your heart. Those things that come to your mind and the, the greatest despair, those are the things that are really at the center of your being. It's really who you are, what you, you find to be treasured in you. And what was it for Jesus? It was the scriptures. Why? Because the scripture will be fulfilled and it won't fall to the ground. Friends, if you take God's word into your life and you build your life on it, then you will have peace that will dumbfound the world. And chances are the world will mock you. They'll laugh at you. Your family will laugh at you. Your friends will, will snicker and joke. But if you build your life on the word, they won't always laugh. There will come a day that all things will be shown to but the, what they truly are. And we should be men and women of the word. We should love it. We should read it. We should pray it and sing it. And when issues arise in our lives, we should look to God's word to give us understanding and guidance. We should be living in this world with discernment and using a, a biblical grid to understand how and what we should do and what we should say and how we should live and how we act and how we make decisions. You know, as you read the rest of 1 Samuel, he relies on the word of God. It's not just a, a job for him, it's a livelihood. It's who he is. And we should strive to be men and women like Samuel who love the word of God, who look to live in obedience to the word. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the challenge that you've given us in your word. I thank you even for this, this story unfolding this morning in 1 Samuel 3 of the, the call of Samuel and we thank you for him. God, I ask that you would help us to be people of your word. 
refresh again in our minds this morning and remembering the significance of your word and how it not only teaches us, but it, it fills us and controls us. It guides us to understand who you are. We thank you, God, that you've given your spirit to indwell us as believers. It makes your word come alive to us. It teaches us your word. God, I pray that we would be students of your word, that we would read it regularly, would spend time in it, that we would look to, to memorize it, to hide it in our hearts. God, help us not to be ashamed of your word. Help us to boldly declare what it says. God, I pray that you would give us opportunity this week to not only read and to study your word, that you would give us opportunity to, to share it with others. God, I know your people here are that lead busy and, and, and full lives. And I think of those that work many hours, I pray that you would help them to, to find time to spend your word, no matter how short it is, but they would open your word. God, I, I pray for the moms that are here, that are, that are home every day, the busyness of, of life, of training kids and teaching kids and, and the struggle it is to, to look for time to spend in your word. I, I pray, God, that you would open up opportunities and where they'd have even short windows that be able to take that. I pray that their kids would not be a distraction. I pray that as families are represented here, God, that we would look for, for time this week to spend in your word together as a family. And you know, and I know God doesn't have to be hours. It just could be minutes together. Help us to make that a priority this week, God. Help us to love your word. And not only as we read and memorize and study, but help us to obey it. Bring conviction upon our souls that we would look to do what the word says. As we leave here, this place, God, may we be obedient to all that you've instructed us. Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.